podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tim Malloy. With me, as always, are co-hosts Aaron Lanton and Keith Denny. Hello. Hey, what's happening? What's going on, people? This week, we're going to talk about Netflix's new High Flying Bird, the Steven Soderbergh film about an NBA lockout. If that sounds weird to you, Aaron's about to explain to us all what an NF- one NBA lockout is. And before mm. I, I kind of talk a little bit about lockouts, so right now the NBA All-Star Halftime Show is happening, and in closed captioning, they have J. Cole doing uh, one of his singles from his album, and the hook goes, count it up, count it up, count it up, count it, and instead, whoever was uh, doing the closed captioning has never heard the song, and they put Canada, Canada, oh, whoops, Canada, count it up, count it up, count it up. Really <laughs> hilarious. Anyway, so, uh, lockouts. Um, real quick synopsis of... Uh, Collective bargaining agreements known as CBAs uh, in American professional sports. So essentially CBAs are agreements uh, collectively bargained between the players, uh, athletes of uh, the professional leagues and the owners of the franchises of a professional league. So say, for example, uh, you have 30 30 owners in the NBA. Uh, They collectively bargain with the NBA Players Association. Uh, who, uh, and come up with an agreement for all kind of things that govern uh, the league, from everything from can you kneel during the national anthem to uh, actual salaries, uh, rookie scales, caps on how much a um, a franchise can have as far as salary for all the players, things like that. So in the movie, what happens is the collective bargaining agreement has um, expired or uh, one party, either the players or the owners, have opted out. Therefore, they have to come to an agreement when the season comes up to actually begin the season again. If they don't come to an agreement on a new bargained agreement, then you have a lockout. And that is essentially what we're looking at when the film begins. There's been a lockout going on for some months. The players are not getting paid. Therefore, the agents are not getting paid. So everybody's just kind of sitting around waiting on something to happen. And the owners, because they normally make their money from other industries as well, don't feel like they have to sweat any situation where they're not making money from the professional leagues. They're good. They're making money anyway. The players are not. And that's the situation you see as the film begins. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Okay. So, Wow. So, so I, I guess I guess in your explanation in the lockout. So, why why would they let it go so long without coming to a conclusion? I guess there um, are several reasons that might happen. Um, so, for example, when we saw the situation with the NFL and the Colin Kaepernick uh, national anthem protest, there are other things that have come up with you know. Uh, with the players, whether it's like CTE injuries uh, in the NFL uh, and wanting to have proper protection and health insurance after they play the game to actual protections during the game so that people are not trying to force them back in. Uh, There's all kind of things as far as like employees' rights that they might argue about. In the case of more recently, the most recent NBL, excuse me, um, professional American lockout was with the NBA in 1999. In that case, the salaries had ballooned so much that it was creating all sorts of different issues. There were other things that came up, too, but primarily what you're talking about is a monetary or financial situation where um, some people were getting salaries that were just way too long and too large, and it was creating an actual crisis in the league. And so um, they 
uh, decided to decertify. The owners uh, did, and then the players decertified the union so that uh, the MBPA so that they could actually uh, bargain. And in that case, they lost, I think, 30 games, something like that. And they've had a 50-game season and um, continued to play the games. They did not lose the entire season, but it did actually wane on the fans, and the NBA lost a lot of its popularity, keeping in mind that this was the year that Michael Jordan had retired the second time. So it was a really big deal to have that happen when it happened. High Flying Bird is one of those movies that has pretty much no exposition. They just have conversations, and you're a fly on the wall listening to it, and um, you have to catch up. And what I got in my attempts to catch up and I, it was one of those movies where I'm like constantly turning up and down the volume to make sure I didn't miss anything. Uh, the owners have basically prolonged this lockout for as long as they can because they're trying to renegotiate contracts with TV networks that broadcast the games, which will mean more money for them and not necessarily more money for the players. And so Andre Holland's character um, kind of manipulating the situation, especially with his client played by Melvin Gregg gets players to make money or find ways to make money on their own without the help of the NBA, um, holding impromptu one-on-ones and three-on-threes and things like that that can be aired online uh, and don't require the express written commission of the commissioner of basketball uh, and don't have to be on TV. And Soderbergh is a filmmaker, obviously, who's um, been trying to circumvent the normal distribution systems for movies for a few years and do it on his own and not have to give money to 20th Century Fox or Disney or whoever. Um, I guess now they're the same people. So he's, uh, he's always looking for ways that he can cut through all that, just like these players are looking for ways to cut through the NBA. And there's also a really heavy racial subtext all through High Flying Bird where they're kind of comparing professional sports to slavery. It's almost like a, a form of like um, flesh peddling. I've never heard that phrase, even from you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I I felt a lot of that throughout the film. And I also, it's kind of like, especially like when you look at the um, the character, um, the basketball player, Eric Scott, mm-hmm. like it really felt like as you're watching the film, like it's like you could see how powerless he seems in the movie. Or... or or not knowing how much power he actually has. So, so into the context for this as well is <clears throat> keeping in mind he's a rookie. Yeah. So, the first scene is actually uh, the agent Ray Burke speaking to him about a bad loan he took. Yeah, out. he took a loan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he took out a loan and figured, all right, well, I'm going to get paid anyway. So, taking out a loan on whatever interest rate really won't matter so much because I'll be able to pay it back as soon as. The NBA ends this lockout. I ain't really got too much to stress about. Yeah. And, you know, you see that happen with a lot of guys. Um, one of the things that's actually really interesting about the film is it doesn't, if you know this stuff and you're really into sports, it, it's something that you can kind of connect. But, you know, as Tim said, like it, it kind of wants you to catch up on your own to some degree. Um, if you are a, um, Elite player, you know, like I'm, I'm just making this up like LeBron James level player. A lockout, you know, sucks for your branding, but like financially, you're not necessarily hurting. Mm-hmm. For a lot of other guys, I mean, the NBA, like the average salary is like in, in I think it's like five million right now. So uh, to a lot of people, you really shouldn't be hurting too bad. Uh, but 
these guys have a lot of things that go on where they just have money kind of flying out of their pockets. Yeah. Uh, There's not necessarily um, always a situation. One of the reasons lockouts tend to end is that the players in the middle or, or on the lower end of the spectrum, as far as the contracts, are running out of money. So you go from a situation where, yeah, we got all got to stick together, guys, to like, hey, I'm running out of, out of funds, you know. And so that kind of breaks the unity that you have. So uh, that's one thing that's actually pretty interesting about the film. I kind of wish it had an opportunity to dig more to veterans who uh, weren't really in a situation where they were financially viable. Uh, but I did think it did a really good job of showing how rookies, guys who have not really had that financial freedom yet, how they're impacted by a situation like that and, and what might drive them to impulsively tweet out stuff and, you know, and, and I even had a, the the kind of decorum to keep things in house. Um, because remember when he was feuding with his teammate about like who's better, this and that, and you know that is yeah. a big deal for guys. You you do have to kind of fight for your spot, even if it's with another young guy, because you know that determines your value in a lot of cases. Like, do you have the the moxie to you know make it in New York and and be respected and not be somebody who could be traded at any minute? Yeah. You know, like you want to have enough, you know, say so and uh, whether or not you get moved. But part of doing that is honestly just being able to work the uh, the public consciousness in such a way where they feel like you're indispensable. Yeah, I think I think that's what that one player said the best was like when you when you make it to the NBA, the first thing that the amateur, the rookie thinks is like, OK, I made it. And he said right. that's the so, worst so, yeah, mistake. Yeah, they interspersed real make. players with like the the narrative of the film. Exactly. So I, I um, should have brought that up as well. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because he was saying how like every day, just to add to your point, it's the day that you have to fight and struggle to prove your position. Yeah, and and that that could be one day where you can't. I guess you can't because it's it's only so much that you can do physically. Right up until a point, I also was gonna ask you, like, so you talk like like as far as veteran players, they usually don't suffer from things like this mostly because of endorsements. You think, or like well, other like I mean, if you're a veteran, don't mean you got endorsement. You had to be like a you know a player of a certain pedigree for that to be a thing. I mean, because see, like so for example, you'll have guys who have like large shoe deals, but then sometimes you're just like a hometown favorite, so you might have. You know, a sponsorship with a car dealership locally. You know, yeah. you might have. You know, I mean, all kind of local businesses. You know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, your revenue stream isn't necessarily only the NBA, uh, but most of the time, if you're a vet, you've been in the league more than five or six years. Like you've done enough where you're, you're you know, and you've had enough viability in the league where you probably have a network of people who help you, um, you know, control your money a little better, you know, um, for a lot of guys, like you hear a lot there, there, there's a 30 for 30. I think it's called like going broke. I I forgot exactly what it's called, but guys would get a lot of money really fast and then they blow it really fast and then they ain't got nothing. Um, and that is not as common today, but there are ways that can still happen. Particularly like right now you see a lot of guys, um, 
really, really, really being involved in Silicon Valley as investors. Hmm. Uh, like, they talk a lot about their branding and this and that, but, you know, one of the things that actually convinced um, Kevin Durant to move from Oklahoma City to Golden State as a free agent was to become an investor in uh, some of the different opportunities in Silicon Valley. Uh, and he, he's very open about it. He feels like building his portfolio is going to be uh, a really big deal as far as uh, allowing him to have, uh, you know, the opportunity to fulfill his aspirations to become a mogul after his career is complete as an athlete. Hmm. Which makes sense. Um, yeah, it makes sense to diversify your portfolio like that. So, And I think that's the thing. I, I don't know if all athletes come into the league with that mindset. Um, well, but the thing is that that's becoming more common. It's I mean, becoming more a lot common. Of, you got to remember, a lot of these guys are like AAU guys. I don't know if you know what that <laughs> is, but essentially it's like when you're in high school, there's like a circuit of different... Um, it's, it's, it's weird because there's so much... There's so many hands and things and ways that seem illegal but they kind of keep going where oftentimes these AAU leagues like they're sponsored by like uh, shoe companies yeah, and they fly these dudes out. Like you might live in, in uh, like let's say Alabama, but then you go to a prep school in Boston and you play in the AAU league where you play with the best recruits in the country for a particular sport. Hmm. And then that's how you become a blue chip or, or, you know, what they call a blue chip uh, recruit, where then colleges start trying to recruit you. And then those colleges also connected to shoe companies. And everybody's making money except these players. And that's the Amateur Athletic Union, which I just Googled? Yes, that's the AAU and if you're, circuit. If mm-hmm. you're listening to this, let me just fully disclose that I know nothing about sports, and that's why I'm asking a lot of really stupid questions. <laughs> I mean, um, me too. Me, me and Tim are on the same boat. Um, <laughs> I think I think um, Aaron is our sports expert here. But speaking I'm of that... sports writer. I'm, I'm, I'm now out of that world, but I mean, I still follow it quite a bit. Though. Speaking of that, I know um, a couple of days back, um, Tim, you had mentioned how this isn't a sports movie. And like what like what what would you define this this genre of film, I guess? This feels like a business movie to me or like a sports movie. Um I feel like it's kind of a movie about Look, it's not any given ideology. Sunday. There's there's no uh real uh sports scenes in it, you know? Yeah, they're not fighting over yards. There's no like come on, dig deep and like win this game. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a movie about ideology, and it's a really kind of high-minded intellectual movie that's sort of looping you in with sports. It's using, like, sports as a Trojan horse. But if you're <laughs> showing up for, like, oh, who's going to win the big game, you're going to be so disappointed. So, the, the actual big um, one-on-one, they don't really even show. Yeah. I think there's one basket made in the entire movie, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, yeah. Hell, when did that happen? I'm trying to remember. Um, when he was playing the... When Eric Scott was playing the other guy, um, did they show any of that though? They showed it like them watching it on the phone. Oh, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So and then someone makes the wise business decision to shut down the game between two teammates because obviously them having a rivalry is good for both of their careers, but that one of them beating the other is bad for both their careers. 
Well, but at the same time, too, what he was trying to do was show that there's interest in players playing one-on-one against one another to garner interest for a league where, well, not even necessarily a league, but simply the fact that players are popular enough to sell tickets without the jurisdiction of the NBA. Yeah. Now, how, how realistic do you think that is, Aaron? Like, do you... Like the premise that they pretty much like what you just said that 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 this movie suggests. How realistic is that? Players do openly discuss it sometimes, and in a really blatant way. That's kind of strange. Um, how viable is it? Not very viable. You don't think so? The the reason being, so you remember how now the internet changes a lot of stuff, honestly, because. In the same way a recording artist would have to normally go through a record label for distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Prince made the point when he... He broke apart from Sony, is that correct? I think that's right. When he became Whoever a symbol and no longer Prince. Yeah, I think it was Sony. He was saying that um, basically the internet would allow you to kind of you know, <clears throat> distribute your content however you want to. You didn't have to go through you know, Sony or, you know, anybody in particular to make that happen. So in this film, they kind of do it through the internet. Now, the reason I initially said no was, remember how in the film they were saying they were trying to renegotiate stuff through all the TV networks. Now, the reason that would be a problem is if the NBA is a partner, say, for example, with like the major partners now, the NBA, what the NBA are TNT and ESPN slash uh and so well it's gonna be tnt disney so disney is abc and and espn so if you said all right we want to make a new league well those people aren't gonna do business with you now you could go to other networks but they're gonna have other interests with different leagues like the things you guys got to remember like all these people are in business together so even if one league, let's say CBS, might not have the NBA, but they got the NFL, now the NFL has partnerships with the NBA, or certain agreements of things they will and will not do. So the NBA, for example, when there are games on on Sunday night, that you know, what the NFL has on Sunday night football, the NBA is not going to do Sunday night games. You know, there are all these little things that everybody kind of agrees to do and not do, and so you're going to start messing with those relationships, and so. You have to have a real something would have to break that that means the traditional sets of distribution are not what you use to actually promote your league, and the internet allows you to do that. And he was also mentioning using Netflix, like doing having to deal with Netflix. Well, Netflix so, doesn't do live content as of right now. Hulu is starting to. Yeah, but but but, but imagine. I mean, it wouldn't. I'm sure it wouldn't take them much to do that. Like. Pretty much well, everybody but, 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 has Netflix. Live, live streaming technology is very different from archived video. No, That's no, no. I different. understand that, but we're talking about Netflix. Like, yeah, I'm talking <laughs> Netflix. Netflix giant. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure I if, feel like he if threw Hulu that can do it. In very deliberately to create the parallel between <laughs> basketball and filmmaking. Yes. Yeah, like I think, I think that so. was definitely. And, I don't know if Soderbergh wrote that, but maybe that's what attracted him to it, because no, this kind of metaphor works for almost anything. It's not just about basketball. I think it's about anybody who's trying to go around the powers that be in the established system to do it on their own. And keeping in mind, and, Soderbergh 
if I'm remembering correctly, films with iPhones, right? Yeah, he shot this whole film with an iPhone 8. And he filmed his other films with iPhones, right? Like Unsane and something else, right? Yeah, it was Unsane. I think Unsane and possibly um, Logan Lucky may have been iPhone. Um, Mm -hmm. This one definitely. He's just a constant experimenter. I mean, he's like a guy who is always going to just try different things and throw stuff out the wall. And it's it's fun. He's an exciting movie maker. Yeah. So from I, I'm not a, I'm kind of curious about this. So like from what you've seen, Tim, um, is this a model that it looks like other people might be willing to adopt and, and take a shot at? I know I would. Because <laughs> it's a lot cheaper from a production standpoint, yeah. I know. To do, to film primarily or even strictly with an iPhone. I mean, the movie Tangerine that came out two or three years ago, I thought was the best movie that came out that year. <clears throat> I was not in the target audience for that movie at all, I don't think. It's about transgender prostitutes um, trying to get by, and it's fascinating. Like, yeah. it's so well done, and I think people talked about this on one of the Ringer podcasts, too. Um, the iPhone just allows you, like, a level of intimacy that a normal camera doesn't, where they have yeah. to, like, you know, clear the street, shut down, you know, do do everything step by step. Um, with the iPhone, you can really just follow people wherever they go and really get much closer to them. And that's that makes for a better movie. Yeah. And, and, and even to add to Tim's point, like, it doesn't draw a lot of attention to you in a sense. Like, yeah. you just walk around with an iPhone, like, and you're just shooting stuff. Like, I, I, I know they add, like, you can add lenses to the iPhone, apparently. I think he added like a wide angle lens and pretty much shot that way. But then I also think it just depends on what type of work, what you're working on. Like this film, I haven't seen Tangerine or Unsane, but this film seemed perfect to just be shot with an iPhone. But I think if you're probably doing like, you know, you need uh, like action sequences or something like that. DC. Uh, yeah. Well, I say I'm about to say DC Universe. I'm thinking yeah. about the actual platform. Uh, you can't do Justice League on an iPhone. Yeah, you, you're not gonna. You probably ain't gonna be able. Nine times out of ten, can't do movies like that on it. You know, but for like you do a smaller, more intimate on an iPhone. Yeah, like for a smaller, more intimate movie, and maybe just for certain scenes in the movie, it's perfect. Um, and I think that's kind of yeah. like when. Back to like the whole idea of Soderbergh, you know, kind of being um, going against the grain um, with the with the age of the Internet. So many people can do things that they weren't able to do like 20, 30 years ago. And like now pretty much anybody can at least learn to be a filmmaker or do an independent film, which is like like what we we're saying, just with a with an iPhone and do something that's actually like industries. Um, standards and looks. So, so let me ask yeah. you guys, like plot wise in this <clears throat> film, like what did you guys actually just think of the film as a whole? Um, I like it more when I think of it as a movie about movies and movie making and distribution and um, breaking rules. Like I even think it's notable that Melvin Gregg, the main, the, the character who plays Eric, mm-hmm. is a big Instagram and um, streaming star. Aside from being like a traditional star, that just um, that that to me adds to the idea of you don't have to go through traditional channels. Yeah, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think um, I probably wouldn't have watched it 
if we weren't talking about it for the podcast, honestly. Mm. Um, <laughs> and 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 some some parts of it, I think, because it was so much exposition and wasn't as interesting to me at, in the beginning. It was kind of boring, but as I got into it a little bit more, I kind of liked the uh, back and forth between the characters, and it made me more interested in like knowing more about some of the politics that goes on in sports. And um and it also Shocked. helped that um Zazie Beats was in it because I'm in love with her, so any scene with her in it, I'ma watch it anyway, so <laughs> she kind of makes it work in a lot of ways because like, she's the audience surrogate, I think. Yeah, where you're kind is. of unsure what her relationship is with Andre Holland's character. And then she gets this thing going with Eric's character with Eric. Um and I don't know, she is kind of the way that you see your way through that movie. And she's she does that in a lot of movies. She's just really likable. Or yeah, exactly. if you're in love with her, you know, even more so. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, and she's... <laughs> I th- honestly, I would like Atlanta, the FX show, a lot less if she were not present. Yeah, it's something about her. It's, it's that charisma, you know, it's something. Yeah. She, she centers a lot of what, what happens. I, I really... Um, I, I just, I, something about, like, her vibe and, and what she, she... Like, she always plays a character that is confident. And and is oftentimes <clears throat> helping guide the male character to be more honest about something they're not normally willing to say aloud. Exactly. You know? um, but we kind of see this here too, where uh, so she is the assistant to um, Ray Burke, the agent, and you know he's just he's really reluctant normally to like give people compliments outright, but you know she kind of makes him state in in a more blunt way like hey like look i really do appreciate you and you are like just a very important piece of this operation so you know please be present and um i need you right now i think she gets the best line in the movie when sonia son says oh you should come work for me i can use someone like you and she goes no thanks i don't like to be used yeah (laughs) that was pretty funny yeah, and she's the she's the uh, oh my god I can't remember the name of this position right now because it's because I need to know now so I can't remember but she's the person who basically leads the NBA PA oh my goodness I think president of the NBA PA I can't remember now um, yeah so Son's character is doing all the negotiating for the Players Association whatever exactly. title yeah so actually I um I want to pivot for a second to to real life um. And, and things we we've seen. Um, so this is a different league too with the NFL. But um, as I think you guys might know, uh, I brought this up to Tim. I don't even know if I spoke to Keith about this, but the NFL has actually settled their lawsuit that uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, put up against them for collusion. Um, in, in other words, uh, him being blackballed by uh, NFL teams to not sign him after his um, kneeling protest during the national anthem. Did, did you know about this, Keith? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so player empowerment in, in the ways that it normally comes up is, you know, I mean, oftentimes, of course, it's monetary, but it also um, comes in stuff like, you know, social protests. Um what did you guys kind of think of, or how do you read what's happened with uh, Kaepernick 
having a situation where he's settled in in not going forward with that lawsuit and let it reach court where because the thing about the, the settlement part of it was that um they would uh, agree not to discuss the, the uh, details of the case so like were records that might have shown that there was collusion or whatever they were saying about Kaepernick specifically uh those records that had been turned over would now be sealed would never see them so it was essentially like an NDA um so with would, that man, like, what do you guys think of that? I would love to know how much money he got. I'm assuming he must have gotten something, and it's I'd love to know if he'll, and, and, yeah, undisclosed. Yeah, undisclosed. Like, you might not know. And if he'll get to play again, and you know, I think he accomplished an incredible amount. Whatever happened, um, he obviously showed other players. It's kind of like at the end of this movie, um, Andre Holland's character gives a book called the uh, The Revolt of the Black Athlete to to the era character and kind of plants the seed for maybe there being a revolution in the future. And I think Colin Kaepernick definitely showed like you can stand up to this league and you can get really far standing up to this league, whatever the issue is. Hmm. Well, what did you think, Keith? Because uh, I don't know if you really had any time to, to think about it. I, and I didn't you know, bring it to you prior to us recording, but I don't know, like, what were your thoughts on that? I agree with Tim in saying that I do think... Um, Kaepernick really, really sparked something in the NFL or just in sports in general. And like you said, like we don't have to pretty much be be slaves to the to the organization that we work for. Like um, we we have a voice. Um, we have something that we stand stand against stand for. You know, the same way as like when you think of like Muhammad Ali when he didn't want to go fight in Vietnam. And they took his belt away from him, you know. Um, it's like we should have the right to protest and the the right to be able to express ourselves in that type of way or form. And it should not, you shouldn't be um, blackballed because of it. And so, <clears throat> so I think I don't know. It, so seemed, I, it seemed like it turned out the I guess the in the best case scenario in a sense. But like you said, we don't really know exactly how much he received in the settlement. Um, but there was an agreement made. The crazy I love thing. that you mentioned. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, no go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say, it's crazy that you mentioned Muhammad Ali, and it's great that you mentioned Muhammad Ali, because I started reading um, just the beginning of The Revolt of the Black Athlete, mm-hmm. uh, which is written by a guy. Hang on, I'm just going to pull this up so I don't get it wrong. Written by Harry Edwards. And Harry Edwards, the 50th anniversary of this book just came out. Harry Edwards is the guy who basically is responsible for the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which is what leads the Black Power Salute by Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the track athletes from San Jose State at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. And that is totally in line with what was going on with Muhammad Ali. And, and, and just to kind of uh, put that in context for people who might not know, that's the black fist moment in the Olympics. Yeah. That really famous image, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the, he's the guy who starts that, and you know some of the criticism of O.J. Simpson when people look back is that he didn't take part in that, and George Foreman apparently got criticized for kind of being apolitical at the time or seen as apolitical at the time, while Muhammad Ali put himself completely on the line the way that Kaepernick put himself on the line now. Mm-hmm. And one thing that um, one thing that Edward says in the intro to the 50th anniversary is 
how just ridiculous it is that these same fights keep playing out in 68, in the mid-90s, and even now. Yeah. You know what's crazy, though? Because I agree with everything you guys said except the stuff of Kaepernick. And here's why. Because Keith and I actually did a whole thing about Kaepernick. Um, and meanwhile, the multiverse, the the podcast that Keith and I do separately apart from a low-key podcast. I, I, I think for like my thoughts have evolved on this a little bit. And um, I've been... The question I always had about this, this is before the collusion lawsuit even came up, was what in the world are NFL owners supposed to do about police brutality? <laughs> so... In the case of Muhammad Ali, we're talking about somebody who th- things were, you know, a lot crazy. I mean, things are crazy now, but they, they're not comparable to the 60s at all um, as far as social upheaval. And he was being asked to go in, um, you know, be involved in the war that he felt like was... Um, unjust, and so he decided not to do that. Protesting during the national anthem, um, you know, I think is up to each individual uh, and, and, you know, for their own reasons. But there's a point at which, you know, when the NFL saying, well, we don't want you protesting, you know, by kneeling, which, again, is kind of weird. It's not really a protest. Again, a, a a veteran said that this would be the way to do it. Because before he was sitting, and then he decided to kneel uh, because that would be considered more respectful. But, you know, whatever. I mean, people felt like it wasn't. But he continued to do it. And then the, the NFL said, you know, essentially, like, we would like for you not to do that. He continued to do it, and so it became an issue. But then when people ask mm-hmm. questions about, like, well, the league is having this this huge thing about it, and he continued to do it. I was kind of honestly confused, and I still continue to be confused about like what people felt like was happening there, because if the NFL was somehow profiting from the killing of Eric Garner or Michael Brown or the numerous other people who had situations occur with them, I'd get it. But that's not what's happening. They're literally just playing the games, like. The NFL owners in no way participate in or profit from the police brutality um, that's going on, you know, in the different things that were being protested. So yeah, that's always kind of confusing. I mean, just just to add to that, I just so if if that if that's the case, which it is the case, they don't profit from it or nothing like that. They really don't have a actual like clear connection to all of that mm-hmm. then why do you have a problem with him kneeling during the anthem well here's the thing the owners are looking at it like and look <clears throat> i'm not i'm not saying this because i'm sticking up for owners but here's the thing if i'm if i am an owner and you're kneeling during the national anthem and i come to you and i say hey look man so i even agree with you this is messed up but like what do you want? Like, what am I, I supposed to at, do about this? Yeah, but that's that's not like the. This. I don't think that's the deal, though. I think the whole deal is like it's like if you in school, for example, mm-hmm. and the national anthem comes on, you expected to get up and do the national anthem, no matter what you believe. 
And if you don't, you're going to get sent to the principal office in certain schools, right? Yeah, in some schools, yeah. Yeah, in some yeah. schools you do that. So I think the whole thing is like, it's a whole, it's, it's like it's a power thing. Like, if you feel a type of way and you want to protest in the way that you want to protest, because to me, I think that's a small thing, in my opinion. Like, so especially if you're kneeling and you still clear, the framing became protesting, the anthem became protesting the NFL. It you know became I mean? that way because I feel the NFL made it that way. Because yeah, I think the NFL well, the did president that. framed it that way. Too. Exactly. So like, that's what I'm there's saying. a lot of things that start happening with that. But once the president, you got to think about it, like if you're just an entertainment business and the president gets involved, now what? No matter what you think of it, fans are going to kind of some fans, not all fans, but some fans are going to be persuaded by the opinion of the president, right? So at that point, because it really they really weren't pushing hard about this until the president kept talking about it over and over and over. That's what I'm saying. That's his fault. No, so, right. I, I mean, but, so at that like, point, but at that point, the only thing I was wondering about, because and this is this is a criticism I have of the players, and, and not just him. There were other players who who nailed too, but it's like so what action are you taking that's supposed to actually impact the police brutality? I'm not saying that they definitely have a way to do it, but it's like protests aren't supposed to be protests for protest's sake, just to kind of say you disagree with something. Oftentimes, just like in the civil rights movement, they were uh, married with an action that impacted the thing that they were concerned about. Like, don't don't you protests, think Kaepernick, sorry, don't you think ahead. he did more than anyone else to make people think about this issue more? Like, don't you think he brought it to mainstream America's attention more than anyone else has? Bringing it to attention is different from impacting the thing that ha- that's going on that you're concerned about. No, so no. like, I mean, like, I mean, throughout history, most things have there has been changes through by bringing something to attention, whether it was slavery, so, whether it was so, civil like, for example, movement. in the civil rights movement. People didn't just bring it to attention. Like they they planned together to do things that brought action politically and and economically impacted things in in such a way where it created change. So for some people, they were saying, "Well, you should boycott the NFL." Blah blah blah. You know, it, people didn't necessarily do that, but the whole thing is they didn't just simply bring attention to it. There was an, also a plan of action that impacted the thing that they were concerned about. So it's not a thing of just bringing attention. Bringing attention is important, but that would mean it's not a whole lot different than the one, well, what was it, the 1% movement or, or like after the crash of 2009, mm-hmm. where people were saying, we're really concerned about this thing, all these people have all this money, and it's like, well, that's great, so what do you want us to do? And no one really had an answer for that movement. It, mm-hmm. it was actually an important thing to bring up, but what action do we take now? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a complete shut up and sing situation where you like go to see um, like for, for my wife's birthday or for Valentine's Day yesterday, um, we went and saw Hello, Dolly. And we were talking about how annoying it is when like you go see like a play or something and they throw in like a shot at Trump and you're just like, OK, everybody applauded. That had nothing to do with anything. Like, can we just get on with the show? Like and we were like, I'm glad that didn't do it. Like they kept it just really like, you know, old and. Uh, irrelevant to anything and that was kind of charming um so we're not fans of like people just 
throwing themselves into politics for no reason, like to just like score applause points. But I don't think he did that exactly because he's not the one who decided that every NFL game should begin with the national anthem. That was a league wide rule. And he decided, okay, if you're going to do this, I opt not to take part in it. And people could have made as big a deal of that or as small a deal as I wanted to. But I guess I wonder, that's the thing, like, is the national anthem, so there's, to me, like, this is all about, like, symbolism, right? So, like, is the national anthem, like, it is a, the national anthem means different things for different people. I don't think, I don't think because you stand up for the national anthem, like, you don't care about police brutality. Like that, I don't, I don't equate those things that way. And a lot of people don't. And I'm not saying that people who sit down suddenly don't care about police or something, but like those things are like, those are, that's a really complicated connection to make all of a sudden. It might, it might've been a bad protest, but the NFL could have just said like, okay, dude, make your bad protest. Like that, that protest doesn't actually make sense. Go ahead and do it. Like that's subjective enough for people to decide. But when they escalated it, or rather, really, more well, the, when the president, president escalated, escalated it. it. Thank like, you. It's this thing: the NFL owners aren't the ones really. They responded to the president of the United States saying something. Like it, it's but, so far out of like. It's not like they were like, "We don't want you to do this." It was like it kept get. It's, I mean, they did eventually, but it was because of outside pressures. I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, the NFL's audience is the NFL's audience. It's not a very liberal audience. But for some reason, he couldn't get a job anywhere, which I think is the basis of the collusion argument. Right. But see, here's the thing. When people talk about him keeping his integrity while also getting this collusion money, the thing is that lawsuit was about him being blackballed. But that lawsuit, it's just weird because for me, like, I think it makes sense to talk about him being blackballed and him being able to, like, sue for that. But when people talk about integrity along with that, that seems weird to me because, like, your salary is not connected to integrity. Like, Martin Luther King Jr., integrity is, like, it's hard for me to see, like, integrity and getting paid. Those are, like, different things, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you do the thing you do because you care about that thing, but, like, integrity and getting paid are, like, very different things. Like, him being blackballed, because of his chosen protests, is, is th- that's about his money, but that's not about the issue that he's protesting. Like they, 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 they are they're connected, but they're different things, though. Like his protest led to the blackballing, but the integrity part in saying like I continue to do what I do despite whatever is kind of weird because he also got signed. For with Nike for yeah. continuing the protest, but now you're commercializing the protest and, and you're commercializing being against police brutality. That's it's interesting. Complicated. I mean, he's also a guy who gives a lot to charity. So I think you could look at it as he yeah. used Nike to kind of keep the message going once he lost his platform with the NFL, which is probably what Soderbergh's film is advocating. You could look at it that way if you want to. Well, be- well and, 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 and Hotline Bird is specifically about lockouts and, and contracts. So it didn't really get into social justice, although they do bring up slavery a shit ton. Yeah. And the reason I think they do that is I think, okay, in the Edwards book at least, he's saying there is always kind of a sub, there's always kind of a racial subtext to sports where the majority of the players are black and the majority of the owners are white. <laughs> Definitely. And, and you definitely want players to stand up and say, 
just so we're clear, like I'm doing this because we have a contractual relationship. You do not own me. And I think the Kaepernick thing kind of turned into that to some extent. It turned into like, wait a minute, you can't tell me when I can stand up and sit down. But um, see, but, but that has but, nothing to do with my performance on the field. But just to be clear, too, see what complicates that is that's true, and at the same time, that's exactly what happens in every other league, including the NBA. Because the NBA had a clause in the latest CBA that says during the national anthem, you got to stand up. Period. They didn't wait for something like this to happen. They were like, during the national anthem, you got to stand up. You can't protest. You can't do this. Can't do that. You got to stand up. So it didn't even come up in the NBA because it's not allowed in the CBA. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's the that goes back to what does that have to do with you as a player? Because but the thing is, the players do stuff out. Typically in the NBA, they do <clears> stuff outside of the game. It's not like they they talk about those things they care about with the media, but they don't worry about doing those things. During the game, like they tend to be like there's a, this thing called the NBA Cares program. They do a lot of th- and the NFL does stuff like this, too, where like they're oftentimes like, you know, doing things with children and, you know, doing like uh, all kind of programs with, you know, at risk youth and uh, children who, um, you know, have terminal illnesses and all kinds of stuff, um, well, including I, kids I, who, 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 you know, uh, are involved in um crimes and and you know trying to find a better way and and correct course essentially i always think when i think of like nba activism i always think of like the miami heat everybody wearing hoodies after trayvon martin and taking that picture together as a team exactly and that that was was very powerful activism i believe so too and and that's the thing we did not see a moment like that in the nfl all we saw was them like doing stuff during the nfl protest and they never did anything collectively to you know, stand up for the same cause, which always confused me. I did not understand the reason for that. It just didn't seem like it. it, it, it I mean, because the national anthem, I get why people were saying it as a symbol of injustice, but at the same time, people have found so many ways to be activists without doing it that way, in a way that felt divisive to a lot of people who really didn't even have an issue with what they were saying, but they're like, why are you doing it during the national anthem? Like, we actually think you're right, but it's like, why are you not standing? I actually think kneeling should be considered fine. It's really weird. People think it's bad, but, you know, it, if people find it disrespectful, it's, then, like, why not find another way? I think it's bad because it's not what they want you to do. I think that's just what it comes down to. It's, it's like... It's just like why I say like with the whole school argument and stuff. I I think people claim it as being a respect thing, but I think it's a power thing. It's just a like a like how dare you not do what I just told you to do. Now with, with us living in a country that's that um I guess is a proponent of um free speech and free free expression. Um, when it comes to certain things, we try to almost come to a person like a almost like in a dictatorship type of manner you know and i think that's the whole deal it's just like i told you to stand up so your ass better stand up well but the nfl got in trouble because they didn't dictate that in, in the terms of the collective bargaining and agreement i don't feel like it should be in there to begin with 
I, I, you like, know what? I would agree. But, but I then, would agree with you there. I, I agree too. Like, <laughs> like, like but, 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 but like, once you don't do that, you probably should just be hands off. And but again, once the president starts talking about it, and he's saying like these, you know, you know, uh, son, I mean, he was calling them sons of bitches, and yeah. like, which is an insult to their mothers. Like, how dare you do? And then like saying this and that, blah blah blah, blah. like. It's the president, man. Like I know, to to some of us, we just like that dude just being crazy. But to some people, they're like, "Hey, it's the president." Blah blah blah. Like you got to do something, and that puts them in a precarious situation. Like no matter what you think, they aren't in control of that situation anymore. You right. could say they could just ignore him, but if they ignore him, he's going to talk about it nonstop, and then it will definitely impact business, even if it hadn't yet. Like, what if the Patriots had said, "Oh, cool, Kaepernick's going to be your backup quarterback"? Like, what uh, kind Tom of hell Brady would they have gotten for that? Bag of hat, that would never happen. <laughs> That's why I like the idea, um, <laughs> just to see how that would all go down. I mean, maybe the Patriots would have gotten a pass because Trump would have gone like, "All right, I like the Patriots," but let's pick another. Let's pick a neutral team. Um, a neutral Chargers. <laughs> Chargers. Okay. A team with yeah. no. A team with no political. Uh, connections that i know of. and no stadium to play in right now but dude <laughs> what if the chargers had picked him up like would all of the like maga crowd have gone after the chargers see and brought okay, them but, but thing is, okay like you gotta ask questions like is he getting a starting job with philip rivers hell no um it doesn't start it <laughs> so like these things all it, it depends on the situation if kaepernick has to be a starter it's a different situation if he's your backup you know what i mean like if you need the penalties do for wins it, it changes the the tenor. Just like when Michael Vick was uh, coming back after he had the situation with the dogs, he came back with Philly, with the Philadelphia Eagles. Remember, like, uh, Peter and several other organizations protesting, protesting, protesting. He was the backup. He played uh, backup for a year. Then so he came back for a year, and he played excellent, and everybody was willing to forgive. The thing that's interesting is after this collusion lawsuit was um, – or settlement was announced uh, – they asked, or his lawyer was asked, Kaepernick's lawyer, if he wanted to enter the NFL again. He said, yeah, I'd love to. Now, the thing is, if he played and he played bad, not a good look. Oh, yeah. But if he played and he had an Ali-like return where he's like, come back kicking ass, changed the whole narrative. Yeah. That's how this stuff works, you know? Do you think he comes back? No. I mean, honestly, I, I think no. Because <laughs> that would be the happiest ending, right? Th th but there's no... Honestly, there's no real incentive for him to come back. There, there aren't scenarios that work out well for him if he comes back. And I think that's why you don't do it. If he does it, great. I mean, I'd love to see what happens for the drama of it. But if we're being frank, I mean, he'd have to really come back and like really just be dominant and i mean he was a pretty decent player uh led a team to the super bowl almost won the super bowl that actually would have changed a lot of stuff too he was, it's weird if he was a super bowl champion as dumb as it sounds it would have changed the tenor of how some of these things worked if muhammad ali wasn't as good as muhammad ali people wouldn't have cared but then again see the other thing too is like you do wonder and I'm not saying this because I, I think he he does not have um, integrity as we, we brought up before. But it's like, see, if he won a Super Bowl, he have a he would have a much longer contract. He would have had a lot more endorsement deals. That changes how things function. 
It just does. It, I mean, and the way people view him and, you know, honestly, even the freedom. I mean, one of the reasons NBA players like the Miami Heat could wear the hoodies is because they were, they were, you know, people who had already been very, very successful and were seen as, you know, like the apex of the league. You know, it's part of, like, you're not going to see the Sacramento Kings doing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's no disrespect to them. No. They actually were a pretty good team this year. But, like, your success, you know, honestly determines the kind of leeway you have and the leverage you have um, as far as your reputation, which which are, you know, allowed to kind of uh, put on the line, essentially. So, I don't know, man. Like it's, I, I, I said a lot is to be kind of devil's advocate. I do feel sure. like the the uh, protest was flawed because they just did not really do much out, outside of the protest. And I, I just feel like it's super flawed to use the national anthem as like this, this symbolic thing to say this has something to do with bad cops. Like, that's just weird to me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's... There's no perfect protest because, like, it's true. It's largely a protest against a national symbol of a lot of local problems. But if you feel like the local problems are ingrained in a national mindset, it makes more sense. But I don't know. Yeah, that's that's very well put. Uh, so I don't know. We we're running a long pot this time. Uh, I, I, I just I, I I'm beginning to understand why sports why sports. Uh, talk works like because there is so much to talk about and i feel like i could talk about this forever and listen forever we did not even get it to i really you know okay the player empowerment stuff um i really hate we didn't we talked so long about kaepernick we didn't get to jump into that i'll just say honestly right now uh some of the stuff happening in the nba with lebron he's about to literally this next cba get all the power of the players stripped away seriously because to sum it up real quick, if you made it this far, like, I, first of all, thank you so much. I'm going to try to sum this up real quick. I, I think you'll enjoy the context of how this functions, though. So, as of today, uh, LeBron James is the most powerful athlete in the world, right? And one of the ways this functions is, so he has a friend named Rich Paul. Really close friend of his. Like, I mean, he talks about them as a tandem all the time. Like, he he's like one of LeBron's like four great buddies. Rich Paul is the owner of Clutch Sports. Clutch Sports, and when I say owner, he's also like the the primary agent of Clutch Sports. So, Clutch Sports is a sports agency. Uh, now, LeBron is not. He has no ownership stake in Clutch Sports, but again. Rich Paul is one of his really good friends, and LeBron is one of the players in clutch sports. But as we've seen time and time again in his tenure in the league, players with clutch sports get um, favoritism in a lot of different ways. And oftentimes, if you're with clutch sports, you know, he might try to maneuver you over to his team, wherever that might be. So LeBron James just signed with the Lakers. They uh, actually just had a guy named Anthony Davis, who's considered one of the top three players in the league, signed to clutch sports. He fired his agent, added himself to clutch sports. So now, again, LeBron James does not act, uh, not own any part of Clutch Sports. But then Rich Paul said that Anthony Davis is demanding a trade to the Lakers. Now you already oh. see what is getting a little weird. So then they, the Lakers, basically offer up everybody on the team, everybody on the team. That there was not a player except the one player signed with Clutch Sports 
whose name is Contavious Caldwell Pope. That's the only player on the whole Lakers roster that was not involved in a trade to the Pelicans for Anthony Davis. The only one. Everybody else was in a trade offer. But then the trade didn't go through. So now Anthony Davis' team hates him. The GM who wouldn't trade with the Lakers got fired. Like all this crazy stuff saw was happening. And his teammates are like, dude, for real. Like you you keep saying stuff about like how all these people have an ownership mentality and they don't care about the players. But yet you put all of us on a platter for one dude because you wanted him on your team and he's a part of an agency that you don't have official stake in, but your best friend is the primary agent in this sports agency. It's wild. And it's blown up so much stuff in the league. It's hard to even get, I can't, we don't have no time to get into it, but like, it's one of the most interesting things happening in a while. And I'm telling you in like three, five years, three to five years, the players are not going to have the autonomy they have right now. And it's going to be a big deal. And it's going to flip around exactly what we're seeing. There's, there's going to be a movie called Low Flying Bird where the owners are going to be seen as the people to root for because the players are such <laughs> doing such ridiculous stuff. Because when you have players trying to dictate who gets traded, that means the whole locker You can be mad at an owner or the GM, but if you're mad at another player in the locker room who tried to trade you, that's a different problem. I think that has to be a breakout from the whole episode, and maybe we can edit it that way. That was amazing. Um, my closing thought thoughts are: I've never been more excited about Ice Cube's three-on-three basketball league, Big Three. <laughs> Big Three which is, is fun, going man. to tear the whole NBA down. Can't wait to see what happens. Uh, the other thing is, I think the most ludicrous, but also kind of best thing in High Flying Bird is when Zazie Beat's character starts reading The Revolt of the Black Athlete, and it's just like, this is the answer. So <laughs> I'm going to recommend people check it out. I started reading it. It's it's fascinating as a cultural document, and it also definitely makes you think in ways you haven't thought before, unless you've thought this way all along. I'm um, going to recommend that, Harry Edwards, Revolt of the Black Athlete. Yeah, man, this is a long one. But, uh, Keith, any closing thoughts on all that that juicy goodness? Juicy goodness, what type of um yeah, I I, I also started on the uh, Revolt of the Black Athlete. I, it seems like a book that's worth um worth checking into. And also for the audience out there, if you guys haven't checked out High Flying Bird, do please feel free to check it out. Also check out me and Aaron's other podcast, Meanwhile in the Multiverse, and Tim's podcast with his lovely wife, um, Shoot This Now. You can um, check us out on um, Spotify, Google Play, where else we at? iTunes. All the joints. We, I mean, All honestly, we, 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 anywhere you listen, you can hear us. Right, right. And be sure to also leave us a review. Please. Yeah. It, it helps uh, spread the word. And as always, tell a friend about us. Um, telling one person is a huge deal. Um People listen to the podcast that are recommended to them by friends, so uh, that would be a really huge deal for us. We really appreciate that. All right, cool. All right, so we out. <laughs> <laughs>